I'm Fathery. This is Dave. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Welcome back aboard the Starship Texas for the 275th installment of the Text Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas, where we take a deep look at Star Trek, old and new. And tonight we are joined by a special guest, Star Trek design legend, Doug Drexler. We'll have him out here uh, talking with Dave and I in just a moment. Just uh, real quick, uh, before we do that, I want to give a big thank you to the Text Trek Patreon supporters. We have an announcement that we'll make later at the end of the show about the uh, the watch party coming up tomorrow, if you're watching us live on Friday, tomorrow on February 17th. And Dave, this is exciting because uh, we've, we've talked to some really cool Star Trek folks. We've talked to writers. We've talked to, we've had like a couple of actors. We've had uh, people who've created shows like Ira Stephen Bear and Mike McMahon, but we haven't really talked to people doing like the design work, you know, creating all this, uh, the, 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 be- the beautiful art and imagery that, that creates the look of the Star Trek universe. And, and, and Doug, it has like the, the history with it. Like he has been there for, uh, you know, with the franchise for decades at this point, you know, hands on everything and makeup and illustration and, you know, uh, uh, design work, FX, the whole thing. I mean, I'm super excited. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And if people that are watching us live, if you have questions for Doug, uh, please let us know in the chat. Uh, but before I bring Doug out, I just want to read a, a little quote from a guest that we had last year, Ira Stephen Bear, who said this about Doug Drexler. To understand Doug Drexler, you have to go beyond the obvious. Sure, he's a talented illustrator and graphic designer, but the key to Doug is his eyes. Look at them closely and you'll discover a Merlin the Magician looniness lurking beneath the surface. I'm convinced Doug knows the secrets of the universe that the rest of us can't even imagine. He's also a big Sinatra fan, so you know the guy has taste. That was Ira Stephen Bear. So here, here he is, our guest, Doug Drexler. Doug, how the hell are you doing? Yeah, Ira's right. <laughs> the secrets to the universe that no one or no one would really want to understand. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have Merlin with us. <laughs> that was a good oh, that's, quote. that's such a that's a great quote though. <laughs> Yeah, that's a lot better than what Ira says about us. Oh, what do you say about you guys? <laughs> no, no, he had he had a good time, I think, when we talked to him. Yeah, he's awesome. He's crazy. <laughs> well, know, a lot I of mean, people say that about Merlin the Magician, so I don't no, I don't know what he's trying to say about you there. Vic Fontaine was really a present to me and uh, me and Ira because we were both big Sinatra fans. You know, so yeah, and um, so so he um, gosh, I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the actor's name suddenly for Vic, but he was like he actually like literally toured with the Rat Pack. I mean, that's just the crazy. Oh, J- James Darren, James Darren. Thank you, thank you. There Did we go. Oh, the Rat Pack? Boy, I didn't know that. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, I don't know if he toured with them, but he, he hung out. He partied with them. Party with them. Okay, oh, well, there we go. He, he tells a few stories. I wouldn't be surprised. After, after you know, uh, I worked with Henry Silva on Dick Tracy, and he was one of the Rat Pack. He was in Ocean's Eleven. And uh, he said that at the end, of the, when they'd be done working on the, because I don't think they worked past five or six on Ocean's Eleven because Sinatra was in charge. And he would just say, put his hand over the lens and say, we're done. <laughs> everybody to meet him at his hotel room in Vegas and to bring your sunglasses, which means that you're going to be there all night till the sun comes up. <laughs> I heard, I, I heard about that, that he was a, you know, sundown to sun up kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was a party guy. He, well, he could do anything he wanted. <laughs> yeah. Could, could only shoot one take though. Didn't want to cut into his drinking and partying time, I guess. Hell yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, they would go, they would go and uh, you know do a uh, their summits at the at the uh, at the hotels. They go directly from uh, working on a film to going on stage at one of the casinos. Wow, that energy! Back back in uh, those days, though, we also had you know in the in the nineteen sixties the revolutionary sci fi show Star Trek breaking ground on TV, and uh, you are one of the OG fans who's been been there <laughs> from am. from the very first run. Is that right? I real oh, I am, and uh, I remember that when they tried to cancel the show in the second season, I was part of the whole Save Star Trek thing, and I, I was thirteen. So and, we owe uh, you extra thanks. <laughs> that that you're welcome. <laughs> Man, I mean, it's why we're here. Well, you know, I um, I was we were writing letters to NBC, and I wrote a letter to all the newspapers too, and then one day while I was in class, I got called to the principal's office. You know, when and that's when everyone laughs because they think you're in trouble. Uh-huh. And, then I, and I had gotten in trouble before for like drawing on my desk. I love drawing on my desk. And uh, I get down to the principal's office and they're all like smiles. The secretaries and, the, you know, and the principal comes out, he's all smiles. And I find out Harvey Aronson, who is a columnist for Newsday, is on the phone and he wants to talk to me about Star Trek. Hang on. Can you hang on one second? My parrot is yelling for me. Oh, go for it. Second. We can we can make small talk. How cool is that? That um, you know uh, you're part of like the letter writing campaign that saved it, and you actually kind of got sounds like some recognition at the time. This is going to be uh, very cool. And to be getting in trouble for drawing on your desk. <laughs> well, here he is. That's a classic. Hey, oh, we have a parrot cameo. What, what's the Anyone name of the parrot? He knows about him. Who's been with me for 43 years. What a cutie. Yeah, I saw another video with him. Um, remind, remind us the name. Beaker. 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 Like the Muppet. Yeah, he's yeah. That's... And he runs, <laughs> he runs my life. Come here. Come over here. Come on. No. All right. He wants to stay here. I assume the parrot must also know all the secrets of the universe, too, that he has all that Merlin <laughs> oh, he knowledge. He's, he's overheard no it. He's that's his familiar. <laughs> You know, they say that parents are supernatural creatures, you know, so. You were talking about how you were called to the principal's office, and uh, and yet well, yeah. uh, this was not a bad thing, as it turns yeah. out. Yeah, Harvey Aronson was on the phone. Actually, I think he's a relative of Isaac Asimov's. And uh, he interviewed me, and um, about a week later, there was an article in New York Newsday. And I was like a geek before the word geek or even the word nerd was, you know, I was just considered weird. I didn't play sports. I was into science fiction. 
that day that that newspaper article came out, I went from being some weird kid at school to being a minor celebrity. Every class I went to, the teacher pulled that article out of his pocket, unfolded it, and read it to the class. <laughs> wow. You know, it's times have changed a little bit. It's a little cooler to be geeky now, obviously. Yeah, kind of a but, shame in some ways, you know? Yeah, but it's nice that you got your moment in the sun there. Well, the first moment in the sun. Right. <laughs> I've, had, I've had more than my share of moments in the sun, which is amazing. And I'm glad that you were wasting time drawing on your desk because you were clearly honing your important skills instead of paying attention to all the useless stuff the teachers were trying to, to tell you. Yeah, I mean, I've hardly used any of that, but all the other stuff like Star Trek is, you know. Now, out of curiosity, was, were you, were you, what kind of things were you drawing? Spaceships and spacesuits and, you know, things like that. I mean, I was drawing spaceships before there was a Star Trek. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, when I was like 11, there was a world's I li I'm from New York City. And there was a World's Fair in 1964 in Flushing Meadow, which is the same place that the 1939 World's Fair took place. And the whole fair, the 64 fair, was like pure science fiction because it was happening at the same time that the space race, the race to the moon was going on. So, and, and also American industry was booming because the rest of the world had been pounded flat by World War II. It was only 20 years after World War II. You know, so companies like General Motors and Ford and General Electric, they had huge amounts of money to spend on crazy pavilions and exhibits. You know, I mean, Disney did the uh, GE Pavilion and the Ford Magic Skyway and General Motors had an amazing, amazing Futurama display. It was just incredible. And my father had a TV repair store about, you know, just a few minutes away from the fair. And um, for two summers, because he was only there for two summers, <clears throat> he would drop me off in the morning and pick me up at like 9.30 at night, which when you think about that, 11 years old, <laughs> I mean, maybe he was trying to get rid of me. Could be. <laughs> but I kept coming back. He kept trying to get rid of me, and I kept coming back. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, that – imagine if I told you that Walt Disney was going to build Disney World, and it, but it was only going to be up for two years. Then he was going to tear the whole thing down. That's what this was like. Yeah. I mean, really, except for the land that Disney World has, the, the uh, World's Fair was really bigger in so many ways. And they tore it down after two years. And then the year after that was my consolation prize was Star Trek premiered in 66. Mm. <laughs> Solid consolation prize. But yeah, the fair sounds like a place where you could like really immerse yourself and feel like you're, you know, have a little foot in that future that we hope for. Well, you know, it was, for me, it was an epiphany moment because I went and I realized that someone is creating this stuff. You know, that someone out there was actually making a living doing this type of stuff, you know. And I, the other thing was that I was sure that Star Trek, that the World's Fair was like ground zero for the Star Trek design aesthetic. Mm. And I, I remember telling Michael Kuda that, and I think he just like was like, yeah, Doug, sure, yeah. <laughs> and then one night we went out to dinner with Matt Jeffries. And I said, Matt, did you ever go to the New York World's Fair? And he was like, oh man, did we go to the fair? We went and we had such a great time. And Vindication. And he, <laughs> and he said, and when I got back, there was a message from a guy named Roddenberry and I like kicked Mike under the table. <laughs> <laughs> When when you were watching the original series during that that first run, were there any particular episodes or characters that like really stood out to you as like 
particular favorites? Well, you know, I mean, first understand that I watched the entire first season in black and white. We didn't even have a color TV. Not everybody had color televisions, right? which is really an interesting experience because if you watch the original series in black and white, and then you watch, say, an episode of Enterprise in black and white, the original series is crisp and Enterprise is muddy because they're shooting the original series to look good in black and white or color. And by the time they get to Enterprise, they're only thinking about color because who's going to watch it in black and white? But it's really kind of amazing to watch that. I, you know, I love Kirk, but Spock was especially, you know, I was a weird kid and I read science fiction and that didn't really gain you any kind of respect. You know, I felt like I was, you know, Spock was, was on a ship where he was the only Vulcan, you know, he was kind of on the, on the outside. I mean, especially in the first season, you can hear it. Right. Oh yeah. Don't, Trek, Trek don't, always don't. seems to have had been pretty good with uh, like having out sort of outsider characters that fans could let, you know link to. Data was of course another one, and other characters along the way. Well, seven. you know, Gene was smart. I mean, he knew that most kids were going through that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the show wasn't just for kids, though. I mean, Star Trek was adult, especially for the day. I mean, of course, Twilight Zone was fantastic, and mm-hmm. Outer Limits was great, and. Uh, but most science fiction was pretty much kid stuff, you know. I mean, I love Lost in Space and Voice of Autumn of the Sea, but they were pretty silly. Some really great design work, but they were the shows were really meant for kids. But that, that kind of uniqueness of, of Star Trek as being like the first kind of serious adult science fiction on TV that wasn't Twilight Zone, that wasn't an anthology. Here, here is a world, here are characters that we're going to flesh out and show you week to week. And just for three years, they were going to get canceled and go away. Because it was so unique, that probably is what kind of led to it being so popular in syndication in the 70s and just kind of becoming a, a canceled show that just got real big real fast. Well, you know, the thing was that Trek was kind of ahead of its time, you know, as far as um, treating everyone equally and inclusion for everybody, you know, um, and that was for the 60s, that was really pretty far ahead of its time. I mean, actually, the truth is, I mean, like Stan Lee was doing that with the, with the Marvel comics he was writing at the time. Fantastic Four, and I mean, there's a, there's a Stan soapbox where he talks about equality. and Oh, for uh, sure. That's very famous now. I used to read Stan soapbox every month, you know. Yeah, we're, we're both big uh, comic book readers. Dave actually manages a, a comic shop uh, here in the, the Austin, Texas area, and yeah, so so much cool stuff, like so much that I like came from the 60s. Like I, I was born in the 80s, but like everything I love, like Marvel Comics, uh, Star Trek. Uh, I'm a big heavy metal fan. You know, Black Sabbath invented heavy metal in the 60s. There's so much coolness came out of that decade. No, it's really true. Um, you know, I was reading comics in the late 50s as a little kid. Uh, Superman and Batman always seemed kind of, even as a kid, I wasn't buying it. You know, I thought it was kind of kid stuff when I was a kid. You know, uh, when Stan started doing, like in the late 50s, they were doing monster stuff, like where monsters dwell, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And I, you could tell that it was, the writing was not following the standard that, say, DC Comics had been doing for years. Uh, and then I guess in 1962 or something, uh, Stan did the Fantastic Four. And it, it was just different. 
was it was so unusual. And I was a very well-read kid, you know. I read, I was reading science fiction. I was into, you know, um, you know Edgar Rice Burroughs and Isaac Asimov, and I was even reading Harlan Ellison, and that's kind of what I measured everything against were the books that I was reading. Uh, and Star Trek, aside from say Twilight Zone, uh, was the f I felt like it was being run by someone who was a fan of science fiction, which was very unusual. As a matter of fact, I remember Roddenberry saying that when Star Trek premiered, his father went to the neighbors to apologize. <laughs> because he was doing this kitty show, you know. I've and forgotten he'll be back that doing good western soon. Just give him a chance. <laughs> That's the way it was, though. I mean, comic books were considered to be, uh, you know, like communist in the late 50s and early 60s. My parents made me throw my comics away, you know. Oh, no. Those things would have been worth so much now. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. And but it's I, also just the, the heartbreak of your parents not, you know, like, and it's, and it's happened to so many kids, but uh, that they didn't, they didn't trust in their kids a little bit. Oh, uh, yeah, it didn't break my heart. I thought they were missing the boat, you know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I never felt like, I mean, they didn't understand the stuff I was into. And when I wanted to, you know, get into, I think I wanted to be a comic book artist for a while and then try to get into, you know, film. And and they, they, they were depression kids. I mean, they thought that was all ridiculous. You know, it was a waste of time. Sure. But it never really bothered me. Not one bit. Not a bit. Let me ask you about comics for for, for a second. You you said oh, that yeah. you said that uh, you, you wanted to be a comic artist. I know that you you actually worked a little bit on some of the gold key stuff. I I, <laughs> I, I, I had never heard this before, but I just recently I read that you you consulted on on a couple issues. Yeah, and I actually wrote like a three pager. But, was that you know, was that in a number forty seven gold key forty seven? Oh, I don't remember the numbers, but we were running we ran a Star Trek shop in Manhattan at 53rd and 3rd called the Federation Trading Post. Of course, at the time, Star Trek was like a dead TV show and Paramount never bothered us or even looked at us. It didn't mean anything. Now try that now and see what happens. <laughs> but at the time, so we used to, I think the Gold Key comics were uh, how I would point out how wrong it can go. <laughs> How wrong can things? How wrong things can go? And like about five minutes after I said that, a couple of guys came into the store, walking around, kind of strutting around, and uh, and they introduced themselves as the you know the the guys who do the Star Trek comics at Gold Key, and we burst out laughing. <laughs> and they're like, "What's so funny?" <laughs> we were just talking about you guys. <laughs> I had to try to explain it without hurting your feelings too much, but <laughs> those comics well, are hilarious. Though, like, if if people have not seen those, like, just, just Google images, look at Gold Key Star Trek comics. There's there's some crazy stuff. Some people love those, though. You know, um, I thought there's some I, nice artistry, like the art. If you're not worried about how it compares to the show, it's there is some nice artwork in it. Well, you know, it was Al McWilliams was d doing the illustrations when I. They invited me over and I went to their offices, which is like practically across the street. I like some of the, the artwork. There's like fire coming out of the, the ends of the, the nacelles. nacelles. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally like... there's like green shirts on the ship in some of the early ones. But they, they started those. They started printing those before the show had even aired, I think. I, I, I think they, they, were, like they our... were printing them out 
like N sixty six. Like our holiday special, Father. Uh, yeah. Which. <laughs> so you know, I I went over and had a meeting with them, and uh, and they were willing to give it a shot. You know, I I went through like two episodes and wrote notes, and Al McWilliams came in, and uh, you know, I mean, the stuff I was pointing out, I'm sure they thought I was out of my mind. Like, who cares? You know. But uh, to me, uh, you know, continuity and is everything. And uh, so anyway, I did that for a little while and, and I got to hand it to them. They let me. But I think it was just another level of, of details that they had to go through and they already had enough work to do and it, that ended up ending. But we did go from there to doing the Star Trek poster book, which was the first Star Trek magazine ever. I don't think I know about the uh, poster book. What was was that something that you you did the art or did you compile it? We wrote the articles and we provided we all the images were from our slide collections and go on the internet and and you know type in Star Trek Giant Post Book. It was the first Star Trek magazine. There are a lot of people who you know I, I did one article that's really famous called the Smithsonian Report where I went down to the Air and Space Museum. And they gave me a ladder and I went in before the place opened up and took all kinds of pictures of the model that no one had ever seen before. I just wanted to point out that that print stuff in the 70s, you know, when they weren't, we didn't really have any Star Trek between like the animated series and, and the movie. Like there wasn't anything happening in those years other than stuff that fans were largely involved with, like a lot of the, the print stuff. So that was really important kind of early on in the, the life of the fandom and growing this, this huge fandom that we have now. Well, you know, I mean, Star Trek got big in syndication, but um, one of the things that was going on was uh, there were fanzines. Fanzines were very big at the time. If you went to early, early Star Trek conventions, it'd be an entire room that was just fanzines. And it was basically fans doing drawings and fan fiction that they would mimeograph. <laughs> you remember mimeographs? Sure. I don't know. I don't think it was Xerox yet. I remember the smell of them. (laughs) Yeah, you knew a test was coming at school if you smelled Mm -hmm. that smell coming into the building. But um, uh, fanzines were really huge. And I really think that it was kind of the fan internet at the time. When we had the Federation Trading Post, we used to take fanzines on consignment. We had a whole wall of fanzines. And people would send them to us from all over the country and you could come in the store and buy fanzines. And I remember maybe about 10 years after that, like 87 or something, there was an article in the New York Times that talked about the influx of women into writing science fiction and fantasy. Up until then, it had mostly been a man's game. But Star Trek opened up science fiction to a lot of girls. And they were the ones who were really doing the bulk of the fanzines. I mean, I did illustrations for fanzines. Greg Jean did. You want to go over here now? You know, yeah. What, what age were you roughly in, in, you know, in that era? I guess I was 23. Okay, just approximate, yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know. I, I you know, I was, I was working, um, uh, there was this company called Homeless Protection in Manhattan where you and another guy in a patrol car would answer burglar alarms and you were armed even. (laughs) That was crazy that I was involved with that. But (laughs) I used to rush home at night to watch the outer limits. I mean, back then you couldn't tape anything. Right. Appointment television. You missed it. So I would rush home 
and it was like midnight or something. And there was like a 10 second still frame ad for the Federation trading post, the only Star Trek store in the galaxy with an address. And I'm like, what? And I, it was just like a couple of blocks from where I was working. And I went over there and I could see it was a storefront. They were working inside and the door was ajar. And I went and looked and there was this guy named Chuck Weiss in there. He had opened the first store in Berkeley, California, which was a hotbed of Star Trek fandom. And they were opening a store in New York and we, we had a conversation and, and we, you know, it's like whenever you meet Star Trek fans at conventions and stuff, it's like you've known them for years because you're all have a shared childhood, you know, and Chuck and I hit it off and he asked me if I wanted a job. <laughs> so I ended up working at the Federation Trading Post, which led to all kinds of other things, you know, but it was still a time, this was before Star Wars. It, 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 it was a time where science fiction was looked down upon. It was really Star, Star Wars proved that there was money mm. in it. And that's what made everybody else who used to make fun of it run at it to try to get involved because they thought there was a buck there, you know? Sure. And I, and I think a lot of shows that are being done today are mostly there because there's money. You know, Gene Roddenberry didn't do Star Trek because there was a demand for it. There wasn't a demand for that type of stuff on television at the time, but he just, you know, he, he, uh, for, he is, he is a science fiction fan and he always respected the genre, you know, so he wanted to do a show. I was watching Gene Roddenberry as a kid on a show called Have Gun, Will Travel with Richard Boone. It was really kind of sophisticated. If you've never seen it, you should take a look at it. Uh, I, I need to add that. Yeah. Yeah, it's on Prime. I mean, um, uh, it was it was, it was, was very sophisticated. And um, Gene, you know, in his biographies in, in the old days, it often said that he was a head writer on Have Gun, Will Travel. And actually, there was no such thing as a head writer on the show. But... He certainly was a leading writer. And I, I mean, I've seen David Gerald say that Gene doesn't know what it's like to ha to not be in charge, you know. But the truth is, is that David really does, I guess, doesn't know that much about Gene Roddenberry because Gene wrote 24 episodes of Have a Gun, Will Travel. And in some of them, you could see Star Trek happening. Hmm. You know? A favorite one of mine is called The Great Mojave Race. Great Mojave Chase. Great because Mojave Captain Chase. Ended up being from Mojave. You know, but if you've never seen it, it's really an impressive show. I was watching it as a kid, you know. Yeah, I think Father and I will both uh, do a little tuning into that. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah it's sure. an amazing I, show. It really if I is. Can, if I can find that episode, I'll toss it on in the uh, the text track Discord server. Yeah, yeah. The great wants to watch it with me. Well, I mean, there's another one that is so freaking Star Trek. It's um, Molly Maguire. It may have been called Molly Maguire. I can't remember, but, you know, basically Paladin. Richard Boone is, uh, he's a highwayman, rob him and take his horse and his guns and everything. And he ends up coming up to a farmhouse where he ends up, he gets a job in, in the kitchen until he could get himself back together. And uh, the woman who owns the ranch is gorgeous. And uh, he ends up more or less winning her over and she falls in love with them, but there's there's scenes like from the cage, right out of that episode where they ride out and have a picnic lunch, and you know it, it's oh, yeah. exactly from the cage. Yeah, with Tango the horse and everything. 
Yeah, and there's even a scene at the end where he has to finally leave, and the you know the person who's the cook and the woman who owns the place are both looking after him, misty-eyed, going, "I'll never find help like that again." You know, it's like the scene, like in an old Star Trek, where it's like, "I'll watch the stars, James Kirk, and I'll remember." You know, is exactly if it had been Star Trek, he would have beamed out instead of rode off on his horse. But it's really it's an it's a, a fantastic uh, piece of television. Doug, let, let, let me ask about uh, after after Star Wars came out and made made sci-fi cool and they started making new Star Trek movies again. And uh, you went out to Hollywood and started started working in the film industry, uh, eventually ending up on Next Generation. Um, uh, just b- before before you got there, before you got like on Star Trek, uh, what was some of the makeup work you were doing in the 80s that like some of some of the highlights well, that really I mean, stood I out to you really got started in the business in new york uh for like the first 10 11 years um i, I got interested in makeup and i found out that dick smith who was the greatest character makeup artist who ever lived lived in larchmont new york he wasn't in california and uh, a friend of mine he used to write articles for film magazines i I went out to his house because he had actual appliances and costumes from Planet of the Apes. And I wanted to see that stuff. And I brought pictures with me and Doug Murray was his name. And I showed him the pictures and I remember him like, hmm. And uh, he was always a hard one to get a read on. And then he says, you know what? I just interviewed Dick Smith. I'm going to give you his telephone number. And I remember wetting my pants because he was like a hero of mine already. You know, I mean, I became a big Dick Smith fan. The Exorcist had a lot to do with it because Dick did all the makeups in The Exorcist. And the, you know, Linda Blair possessed little girl was horrific. But it was years after that, I saw Max von Sydow who played the mm. like 86 year old priest, Father Marin. Right. And I saw him in a movie like years later and he was like in his forties. Like, to this day, <laughs> one of the greatest old age makeup effects ever maybe the greatest one well it just goes right by you you never even realize that it's a makeup Mm -hmm. and that the linda blair makeup is not the makeup of the exorcist it's father mary and so i was a huge dick smith fan and then doug murray gave me his telephone number and it took me a couple of weeks to build up the courage to call him you know and uh i called him and he kept me on the phone giving me information and talking to me for like an hour and um, I started sending him pictures of my work, which had to go through the mail. There was no internet. <laughs> and then um, calls me one morning and says, can I come to work on, to be an assistant on a movie called The Hunger? It's like one of the first new wave kind of vampire films that had David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon in it. And I mean, it, I I couldn't believe it. He, he said to me, he says, I can't afford to pay you much, like $60 a day. Is that okay? And like, I think I was making $150 a week at the art store I was working at, you know, so I was crazed. Uh, And so that was my big opportunity. And I really haven't stopped working since then. (laughs) Um, It was really miraculous. Uh, But I, you know, I ended up hooking up with another Dick Smith guy, a guy named John Caglione, who we became makeup partners. And we worked together like 11 years. And we did, you know, a bunch of stupid movies and, and some cool ones. And then we managed to land Dick Tracy, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, which 
at the time, I mean, Warren Beatty was, was huge. And uh, the idea that we would, when I, when we read that Warren Beatty was going to do Dick Tracy, we knew, I remember we looked at each other and said, whoever gets that job is getting an Academy Award. Because <laughs> You're talking about yourself. I, I didn't know it. Uh, it uh, you know, Warren really didn't understand Dick Tracy. Uh, the movie he made was just a gangbusters movie. But if you really read Dick Tracy, you have no idea how far out and weird it was. It was so bizarre. And there was none of that in the movie, except the characters were bizarre, but that was it. But Chester Gould, the guy who did the script for 50 years, that stuff was whacked out nuts. And he was a big science fiction guy. I mean, Dick Tracy was science fiction. They had two-way wrist radios and then later wrist televisions. And, you know, in the seventies, Dick Tracy, you know, was going to the moon. There was a valley on the moon called Moon Valley, and Junior Tracy married a moon maid from the moon. I mean, it was like crazy shit. Diet Smith was the, to the, the Tony Stark of Dick Tracy. Before there was a Tony Stark, there was Diet Smith, who invented all the far-out stuff like the space coupe. And where's my space coupe? See, here's a little printout of a space coupe a friend made for me. See that? Nice. This was a Dick Tracy spaceship. It was all run by magnetism. It was amazing. I love, love all the old uh, classic no. rockets. Yeah, the, no, the very, no. very pulp sci-fi stuff right there, yeah. No, there was nothing like that in pulp magazines. They were all silver rocket ships. This was like totally its own thing. Nothing else has been like it, you know. So you said Beatty didn't quite get Dick Tracy. No. Did you Did you enjoy the experience, though, of interacting on that oh movie? And... Yeah, it was incredible. I mean... It's a, in my life, it's the greatest, greatest movie ever. You know, it, it brought me to California. That's how I got on Star Trek. It's how I met Dorothy, my, my wife. We had, as a makeup artist, we had like every makeup, every actor in town wanted to be on that show. And they all worked for scale as a favor to Warren. I mean, with Al Pacino, you know, and Dustin Hoffman and Jim, James Kahn and Henry Silva. And I mean, it was just like amazing, absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And as the makeup guy, you're you're up close and personal with them every day. Oh, well, that's for sure. You know, I mean, you're living with the actors, which when I went to after Dick Tracy, when I ended up on Next Generation, because I begged Mike Westmore <laughs> to hmm. let me come on the show. And he's like, but why? You're doing features. And I'm like, no, no. Star Trek is it for me. This is where I have to be, you know. Working on Star... First of all, I went on to Star Trek with a lot of street cred because I came from a Warren Beatty movie and they were all delighted. The Oscar didn't hurt either. Well, the Oscar hadn't happened quite yet. That happened while I was on Next Generation, which knowing that the whole cast and everyone was gathered around a cart watching me win on, you know, on television, you know. But the, the beauty of being a makeup artist is that you are, you are there with the actors every day, close up, in their worst moments and their best moments, and you become very close. Art department, you know them still, because you see each other every day. But when you're a makeup artist, it's like you're right in there, you know, in the trenches with them, and you're spending every minute on stage with them, and the hours are long, and work is very, very difficult. I mean, you got to have a lot of stamina to work on a TV show like that. I mean, you're not working a 12 hour day, you're working like 15 or 16 hours a day. And, you know, um, but I had the greatest time and the next generation cast, which was really all cast by Roddenberry and, uh, and Justman, you know, that, what a wonderful cast. I mean, the laughter, 
and they all really really loved each other i mean to this day they're still like super close friends yeah they're they're famously still a really close group of friends they've like their big yeah, and, christmas and party they don't forget year. me either i mean when i see them i mean jonathan frakes dougie after all the time you know um so much fun it was the shows would go very late at night and the later it went the sillier it got <laughs> and i just remember that um i mean being on stage with them it, they'd be singing show tunes and it was like crazy crazy stuff did you ever have like when you were did, did you apply the makeup itself as yeah. well you were doing the full application I mean, did you also deal with like high tensions and stressed out people? I assume. Of course. <laughs> if you're a makeup artist, you have to be part psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, most of the, the actors on TNG, the regulars, were all pretty well adjusted. But you'd get actors who would be coming in on, a, you know, new actors every week, and some would be nuts. Some would be crazy, <laughs> you know. Um, and you have to deal with that. You know, it's part of your job is keeping them calm. <laughs> let, let me ask you, because the actors have debated this. In your opinion, what alien species prosthetics is actually the worst for an actor to work in? Is it Ferengi, Talaxian? Like, what, what do you think looked like Borg. the worst for Borg? Borg? Mm. Yeah. yeah, because you're in these like heavy suits that are not comfortable. You've got things glued to your eyes. Hmm. To take a pee is is difficult. <laughs> you know, you can hear the moaning and groaning coming out of the shadows of people who have to play the board. You know, I never. And part of your job was making them feel. I mean, people like that can they can start to treat them like furniture. You know, on hmm. stage for sure. And as a makeup artist, it's your job to go over and. You know, give them a little shoulder rub and ask them if they'd like a cup of coffee and can I get something for you and, you know, keep them from freaking out. I mean, there have been some actors that freaked out. I I know one night I was there, an actor went home, couldn't take it, went home with the makeup on, with the costume on, didn't come back. Wow. You just have to, like, roll with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I I know about that story. I think it was a, a Vulcan on Enterprise, right? Where's that? No. Although that may have happened. Okay, that might have happened too. Okay, yeah. I was only doing makeup on TNG. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. After TNG, I ended up in the arts department. And I, and we should mention, like, I, I believe one of the most famous ones, in my, if I'm correct, is was Picard's old age makeup for the inner light. Yeah, yeah, I put that on for Mike Westmore. I mean, um, now Mike totally designed that makeup. I just mm. put it on. Um, I had worked closely, of course, I would see Patrick every day, but... I think the first time I put a makeup on him was he played like one of in a holodeck simulation, he plays one of the King's men or something in a Shakespeare thing. And I put that on him and um, he freaking loved it. I mean, he was having so much fun with that. And then when I did uh, inner light, um, I remember he had to get in at about 2 a.m. to start the makeup. And I, I, I was playing Sinatra on the radio. And then when Patrick came in, I put classical music on it. You were here classically. And he goes, Doug, was that Sinatra you were playing when I came in? He says, I love Frank Sinatra. And so ended up putting it back to Frank Sinatra. But, uh, you know, you really get to know somebody when you do a makeup. I mean, in a way, you're kind of like a, a torturer. You're torturing them, <laughs> you know. But th- something happens that is like, um, uh, you ever hear Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you've been kidnapped 
eventually you begin to identify with your captors and fall in love with them like your mommy and your daddy, you know. I mean, if you're a makeup artist, you're wiping their nose and, you know, looking after them and pretty soon they fall in love with you. They can't help it. Even if they hate you, they hate you at first. Then they end up loving you like you're special. You know, it's funny. Uh, who was the guy who played Q, the board Q? Jonathan Del Arco. You know, I, I paid a lot of attention to him on stage. I didn't put his makeup on, but I pay a lot of attention to talking to him and touching his makeup up. And I got to be pretty good friends with Hugh. But then about four months later, some guy runs up to me in the back lot and says, Doug, don't you remember me? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. I don't, who, who, and he was so offended that I didn't remember him, but I've only seen him as a board. I have no <laughs> idea what he looked like out of his board makeup, you know? But yeah, makeup's crazy. That's I'm glad to be done with it, I have to say. <laughs> I prefer the art department. Well, show, Father, shall we use that to uh, talk about the the NXO one? Uh, sure. Um, well, well, I don't know. Before that, because uh, mm. you you were in the art department on on DS Nine and and uh, when Voyager and like some of the movies around that time, like like Insurrection. Yeah, I mean, and... I was supposed to start in the art department at the end of TNG, but the person who was leaving got cold feet and and I didn't leave. So when DS Nine started up. Mike, who I'd become friends with, uh, I ended up going to Deep Space Nine. And I'd never been in an art department before, but that's really what I wanted to do before makeup. You know, makeup just kind of happened to me. I didn't grow up wanting to be a makeup artist. You know, I remember Mike later told me that Herman didn't want to hire you because he said he knew you and he didn't like you. And I'd never <laughs> met him before. Never met him. He had me confused with somebody else. Oh, oh yeah. He had you confused with that other Doug Drexler. That other guy is totally an asshole. Well, it's like, well, I am an asshole, but uh, uh, Mike said later on, Herman came up and said, you know, you were right about him and he wasn't the guy I thought he was. Well, in, in the art department, when you got the assignment to design the, the hero ship of, of the new show of Star Trek Enterprise, the NX-01, uh, what, what was what was that initial process like well i mean the thing was that i wasn't on the show yet when they were had started up i didn't want to do graphics again you know i had done that for seven years you know i love working with mike but but i was at foundation imaging learning cg and they were doing the star trek was slowly starting to do cg stuff and so that's where i wanted to be and they brought john in. john was doing designs and they ran him through the mill i mean he must have done 30 designs you know they were all fine you know J john but, eaves um, is who we're talking about john yeah john eaves it just got to the point where herman needed to move on to other stuff and mike said well listen why don't you bring doug back and let him work on the ship he could do he could bring back the cg information you know the, how to do cg with him up until then the ships had all been done as like marker sketches which is kind of you know, if you want to change it or adjust it, you've got to redraw the whole thing again. And, you know, and you can't see it in different kinds of light. You know, I could build, do a design and spin it around and fly it across the screen and you could really see what it looks like. So you were pretty happy to move to move forward to to that sort of modeling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and really, I mean, and building models is just terrible really with the chemicals and the fumes and you know i know people who got sick from doing that kind of work you know mm -hmm. uh cg is 
is so much better in so many ways. And it just keeps getting better every day. You know, um, geez, I was watching a, a Fast and Furious 10 or something the other night. And you can't tell the car crash. Oh, yeah. Real ones. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, you cannot tell. It's so good. So Herman invited me back to do that. And I said, well, yeah, I want to do that. Oh, my God, an enterprise. I said, but I can't. I have to give him two weeks notice. I can't just leave. And he said, oh, that's okay. He says, I'll just come to your house after work. So I would go work all day at Foundation Imaging, come back, and Herman Zimmerman would be sitting on the steps of my house waiting for me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, I'm tired. Oh, my and God. Spend, like, hours with me, you know, looking over my shoulder. And, and that's how that got started. And then I finally went back to the office with Mike and Denise, and, you know, which is, the be- to me, that's the best place. Art department's awesome. First of all, you know, you got to remember that visual effects, if you're in the art department or you're doing makeup, you're in a union and they will take care of you and there's a pension and you get health insurance. Visual effects is like anyone who's working in visual effects is not getting anything, you know, uh, they have no pensions. There's nothing, you know, I did it because I was fascinated by the technology. And then when I went back to enterprise for, you know, four years, which is great. Gary Hutzel, who was a visual effects supervisor on Next Generation Deep Space Nine, we become great friends on Deep Space Nine, and he wanted me to go with him to Battlestar Galactica. And I'm like, Gary, I can't just leave Enterprise. It could go for seven years, you know. And uh, we knew that there was a trouble in River City when, when people come in the art department and start measuring the office, you know, mm. you're probably going to get canceled. <laughs> the writing was on the wall. Yeah, I mean, we found out on the internet. They didn't tell us. And I remember dr- driving home thinking, wow, I mean, I just worked straight for so many years, which is unheard of. I'm probably never going to work again. And I got home and Dorothy meets me at the door and she says, there's a phone call from Gary Hutzel. And he's calling from Vancouver. I, I knew he was going to invite me to come to Galactica, which is what he did. You know, I mean, I got on the phone and he said, I heard about Enterprise. I'm like, yeah. And he says, but you know, every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> And he asked me to come work with him on Galactica, which was fantastic, only because I loved working with Gary. And also, Gary gave me opportunities that nobody else would have given me, you know, because Gary knew me so well. As long as I was at Foundation Imaging, they were giving all the interesting stuff to their people who had seniority, you know. And But when I went to Gary, he wanted to get away from those, uh, you know, effects houses. He wanted to do it all in-house. So now I had all this amazing opportunity, you know, to design shots. I mean, when you when you're working on a show like that and you're doing a shot, you own the shot. You're lighting it, you're setting up the camera, you're setting up the action. You know, it was really incredible. Uh, but I, but you know, Gary eventually, you know, Gary, uh, Gary passed, and I didn't stay with visual effects. I ended up going back to art department after that because it just wasn't worth it. You know, it's exciting and everything, but. The hours are miserable. You don't get compensated. You know, if I if I'm in art department or makeup, and we're doing overtime, I get paid for overtime, but not in visual effects. You don't get overtime. Is that is there any chance of that changing? You know, with sort of more um, the, the strikes that have been going on, that this might catch on for visual effects as well. No, mm. never happened because they're afraid to form a union because if People in Los Angeles make a stink and go on strike. They'll just go to Singapore. They'll just go to New Delhi. 
they'll just go to Hong Kong and do it over the internet. There's no leverage. Mm. So they're afraid to have a union because there's too many other places you could go. If you're a makeup artist, you've got to be on stage. You know, you, you can't do makeup over the internet. Uh, and art department is the same thing. You got to be there when they're building the sets and it's a whole different thing. Yeah, you, you can't phone that in. <laughs> I, I, I feel sorry for my friends who are in visual effects, you know. Well, let, let me ask you this about it. It sounds like just in addition of the, the job perks being better, but I, it sounds like your heart is really more in the the designing world. Well, the thing was that when I was working with Gary, I was doing visual effects, but we were also designing, you know, on Battlestar Galactica, the art department was so cool that we designed the ships. They didn't, they're like, oh, guys, go ahead, you do it, you know. When we did the last show that we did was Blood and Chrome. The whole show was green screen. Right. And they were bringing in Doug McClure, McLean, who was uh, art director on the show. And they took so long to make up their mind, he had to take another job. And he said, you know, you don't need me. Those guys in visual effects can design everything themselves. And that's what we did. We ended up, you know, we designed the entire show. The art department didn't do it. So with Gary, there was always that you know, where I could be a designer and do visual effects. That's not usually the way it works. It was very unusual for that to happen that way. You, working on like the NX-01, which the, 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 I, I saw that term thrown around for a hero ship. Is that, did that just describe like the big, you know, like the Millennium Falcon and the Enterprise and things like that? Is that, is that, is that the term? If you've got a, a if you're doing a Star Trek show, your main ship is the hero ship. Right. I mean, and that's true even for props. If you got your prop for on screen, it's your hero prop. Are you just under so much more scrutiny when you're designing a ship like that than you are for, like, say, smaller, uh, smaller things that you might sketch out or design? Well, graphics. They don't look at the graphics that close. Mm -hmm. You know, but I, I learned to hate doing ships mm. on the show because everyone's looking at the ship and everyone thinks that they know how to design and they're all telling you how to do it, you know? And, um, after enterprise, I was like, I never want to do ships again, as long as I live. And then, you know, after enterprise, they pretty much forgot about guys like me and Michael Kuda and stuff like that. On Facebook, I was talking to this guy, uh, Dave Blass. I thought he was just a fan, you know? I mean, he sent me pictures of himself wearing uniforms as a kid and, and then he says, by the way, I'm going to be the production designer on Picard. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I, 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 really? And he wanted, he was, he wanted to bring me back. He wanted to bring Michael Kuda back. And he was a real fan of the shows. He, and he loved the continuity. He always hated it when they kind of ditched continuity in the later shows. It really bothered him. Yeah, that was, a, that was kind of that cool resurgence of a lot of the classic design work that kind of came back in Picard. Yeah, so I thought he was going to ask me to do graphics. And he's like, no, I want you to do ships. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> but the thing <laughs> oh, no. was that Dave really trusts me. You know, he grew up on shows that we did. And Terry Metalis, who's a producer or showrunner on Picard, he was like a writer's assistant on, on Voyager and Enterprise. So he was like a kid on those shows. And he used to hang out in the art department with us because that's where all the cool people are. And uh, so I've known Terry for 30 years. And 
Terry was mostly concerned about whether I liked it. Are you happy with the Doug? Because if you're not happy, I'm not happy. That was so unusual. I mean, I couldn't do that with Rick Berman. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to ask you, oh, so Rick Berman never came and said, Doug, are you happy with this? No. Do you approve of this design? <laughs> not, a, not a chance. Not a chance. You know, I mean, Rick Berman took a lot of crap from the fans, but he really did a good job with the show for many years. You know, some of our favorite episodes were done under his watch. You know, yeah, we had 18 years of continuous Star Trek. That that was how I grew up. That was my childhood was as, as a child born in the 80s. I just had Star Trek my entire life nonstop. And then in 2005, they cancel Enterprise. And I was like, you can do this. You can just like not make Star Trek. How is that possible? How is this you fair? Know, a, a lot of people think that Enterprise didn't do well, but it actually did. That's not why it was canceled. First of all, it was on UPN. Okay. Not everybody got UPN. It was like a very tiny market. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing was that Rick Berman and Les Moonves, who came to be in charge of CBS when the big switchover happened, those guys hated each other. And that was mostly the reason that Enterprise got canceled when it did, because it was like a, a vengeance thing. You know, it really doesn't come down to whether something makes money. It comes down to ego. Things didn't work out too well for Les Moonves in the end. So no, no, not too, not too well. But uh, yeah, that was unfortunate that uh, you know everyone loves your famous NX refit design. It, yeah, it is unfortunate Enterprise didn't run long enough that we never got to see that. Yeah, but well, I mean, in the NX was utterly ripped when it first came out. It was the first first show where there was internet. Oh boy, <laughs> and we yeah. got eaten alive. But you know the thing is that just look at the internet and see the crankiness of some fans who just, you know, I mean, it's like I told Dave, because he had to get used to this, that there are people who they they hate love a show. They love going on and telling you where you went wrong and why it sucked and why it was no good, you know, and you have to understand that part of the show is people who love it and the people who hate it. They're still <laughs> watching it and loving it, even though they're ripping it to shreds. I mean, look, when Usually a ship, they hated the D when TNG premiered. Hated sure. it, hated the guard, you know? I, I find that once you have a number of episodes that people really love, the ship becomes okay. <laughs> when we were doing Picard, when Terry put pictures of the, uh, the Titan out there, it was getting ripped to shreds by the fans. But once the 10 episodes are so aired, they love the ship, you know? So yeah. if they're not saying anything, then you're in trouble. If you're if they're ripping it or they're loving it, as long as they're doing one of those two things, you're succeeding. Yeah, they, then you know they're watching. You know they're paying attention to you. Yeah. Uh, Ira Stephen Bear was, said something oh, yeah. along those lines in the Trek documentary or the DS9 documentary. He, he liked that engagement. <laughs> yeah, and Ira, where, you know, it was all about above-the-line people, the writers and the actors. When, I mean, it's like we hardly got any. The designers got hardly any time on that show. There was a, I love Ira, but, you know, uh, I'm sure that they felt that who would be interested in that. But, you know. Um, that definitely feels like it was the writer's show. Of all, of all those Berman era shows, DS9 was the writer's show. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, DS9 was pretty hated for the first couple of episodes. But once, once Berman and Braga went to do Voyager... 
and Ira came in and Robert Wolf and stuff, they started doing these long arcs. Right. You know, although they, they were war arcs, which I'm not, I'm not a fan of the war stuff, you know, but it really worked out for Deep Space Nine. Well, Doug, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us today. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to you get another chance to, con- as someone who grew up watch, uh, enjoying a lot of your work, it was a great joy uh, just to get to, s- to see more Drexler Star Trek in, in Picard <laughs> seasons two and three. Well, you know, Picard was full circle, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera too. You know, that was a wonderful thing about it. There's a direct line from Picard to that that era of shows. Mm-hmm. And that's why if Terry ever gets to do Legacy, it's going to be about tying up loose ends from that era. You know, and I think fans really want to see that. Yeah, there, there's a, a big demand for that. You know, I did end up going to Orville for a season. But I think I probably almost certainly will be on it for season four, which is probably going to happen. I'd love to see legacy happen, but that could be a couple of years away. And I don't know if I'm still going to be working by then, you know. But you, th- you think Seth is going to get the Orville season four? That's that's going to be relatively pretty soon. I do. Because Seth does what he wants. <laughs> you know, he's, a, you know, he's That's what it seems power. like. Yeah, that's, what, that's certainly what it seems like. Yeah. If they don't want to pay the money, he'll pony up his own money to finish an episode, you know. Um, so I, I do believe there'll be a season four. That's cool. We're, we're, we're ending on, on some, some very, very strong confidence from Doug Drexler on, on the return of yeah, the Orville. I, I do. I really think there's going to be a season four. I, uh, you know, I mean, eventually, I mean, I'll never stop working on my own projects, but eventually I'm going to, you know, right off into the sunset as far as TV and stuff like that goes, you know, you got to take a nap occasionally. <laughs> well, Just... you know, a dirt nap. I, uh, no, 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 you can't I, you do know, that. I'm, I'm writing, I got all kinds of stuff I'm doing on my own. I'm writing my memoir, oh. which goes all through makeup and Star Trek and, and it's all funny stories. You know, I think people are going to really like it. When, when will that be available? And is, is there anything else that you want to, you want to uh, tell us about before? Uh, well, you know, we like I off? said, there hasn't really been any work as far as Hollywood for the last year. The fourth season of Orville will be, you know, when I, I go back to work. The memoir is important to me. I think a lot of Star Trek fans will like it. And anyone who's interested in Hollywood will like it. It's not just Star Trek. It's not an art book. You know, um, it really, I think it's more interesting than that. But uh, I've been a lucky guy, I got to say. It's been absolutely amazing. You know, I mean, uh, there, you know, there was an Academy Award on Dick Tracy. And I have a couple of Emmys from, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica. And we were nominated a bunch of times for that. And it's been pretty damned amazing. I I would love to work on Legacy. I can't say I'm dying to work on any of the other shows since then. I they they look like stuff, you know, there's doing Star Trek, but it you know, there was something um groundbreaking about the original Star Trek and Next Generation and the shows that followed that, where there was still a lot of Roddenberry going on there, you know. Um I was never really interested in dis- being on Discovery. I never even tried to be on it. I wasn't that. I wasn't crazy about the movies. You know, I have to say that when I saw the first movie, I wanted to like it, but I, I swear to God, I, I went to Rod Roddenberry's screening at the Paramount lot, and I walked out after about a half an hour. I, and I wanted to like it. It's just that there was stuff in it that I found. You know, there was a Starfleet 
crew uh, cadet who yelled, I can't wait to kick some Romulan ass. And I think mm -hmm. there was a makeout scene with Spock and Oren and the Turbo. I'm like, oh my God, I don't have to sit here and be tortured. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up, Dorothy saw my car pull up at the front of the house and she's like, uh-oh, <laughs> back early. I feel like you've earned your opinion on, on Trek. That seems fair. You know, you know, I mean, yeah, I think I have. <laughs> <laughs> you put in your time. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had so much to do with it over the years. I've spent so many years protecting it mm -hmm. while working on the shows that I feel protected towards it. You know, and my job was looking for things that were wrong, you know. Uh, and I just felt that, look, I'll never forget I saw... J.J. Abrams on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And John is a big Star Trek fan. And mm. he's listening, you know, with rapt attention to J.J. Abrams talking about the show. And then J.J. says, well, you know, I never really was a Star Trek fan. I, I always used to hate it when they would get all philosophical and stuff. And I'm thinking, <laughs> that's what I loved about the show, that it could be philosophical. Yeah. And then I remember John Stewart goes, you know, I think I stopped hearing you when you said you didn't like Star Trek. Did you ever see that? Yeah, yes. yeah that I remember was that. Awesome. Iconic, iconic. <laughs> That's got to do it for you. He cuts right to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I've been one lucky guy. Oh my God, you know, and my Star Trek dream came true. You know, and uh, and you know, working with Mike Westmore and mike okuda and herman zimmerman and and then when you're on a show like that for that many years that's how i ended up doing a lot of other stuff because if you if you're on a show that really lasts a long time you can slide sideways into other departments i slid sideways mm -hmm. into the art department slid sideways into visual effects i, I would have loved to have worked in the wardrobe department i'd love to do costume design you know there you go Ter terry metallis is going to get you in the wardrobe department on star trek legacy mm -hmm. so as soon as, soon as I, you're you know, done with uh, seth on orville we'll have that if, lined up if, for if you two years they do legacy even though i want to retire <laughs> i would do it just to work in under those conditions where you know i got a lot of respect on picard from terry and dave and that really goes counts for an awful lot you know well, uh, I'm not surprised because I know that those people that were, were fans of the shows that you were working on. I mean, like I used to, you know, read the Star Trek encyclopedia every night. You know, that uh, Mike and Denise is a Star Trek encyclopedia that like a lot of like your your designs and stuff in it or, you know, like the DS9 technical manual. That was like a big favorite of mine. So I like so well, much I of your work. That, is... book, that tech, the DS9 tech manual. When did I do all of these illustrations? <laughs> We didn't, I don't think we even got a chance to get around to your ships of contributions to the ships of line calendar. Oh, yeah. That's another, I think, you know, one of those really beloved fandom, you know, or in you fandom. Know, I edited that thing for like 25 years. It's crazy. Although the next issue is going to be a best of issue because they couldn't come to an agreement with me. They started, they started, you know, when something becomes successful, they start to try to tell you how to do it, hmm. you know? And for the first 20 something years or so, no one told me anything. It was anything I wanted to do. They didn't, no one got involved. And the last few years, the art direction has been telling, you know, pixel plucking and, you know, it's like, I, I don't know if I'll be doing, I might be consulting, but I don't think I'm going to be the lead guy in another year, you know? I, I, I don't do, I only, it's not, you don't make a lot of money doing that they make the money 
everybody who's on it and including me we do it because we're left alone but now there's you know when something becomes too successful uh, and and the calendar has been like on amazon's bestseller list every year you know but uh well listen i am gonna have to run but if you want to have me back sometime Sure. We'd love to have you back. We'd love to talk again. Uh, but thank you so much for tonight. And I'll remind everyone if the mem- memoir comes out, uh, you know, be sure to let us know and, and I'll, I'll be able to. I'm going to try to have it finished by the end of the year. Okay. And then it'll probably be another year or so before uh, it sees any publishing happening. Thanks again. And uh, have a have a great rest of your evening. Uh, thank you, guys. And thank, thank you, you everyone who's watching. Well, that was really awesome. Uh, Doug has done so much cool stuff. Like you were saying, it was a really lucky, lucky life. But uh, I, I can, I mean, like, I'm glad that he's he's willing to, you know, take time to share those uh, experiences and memories with us. It's uh, sounds like yeah. quite quite the journey. I, and I want to give a a big thank you and shout out to the uh, lovely, lovely uh, Text Trek patrons who make the uh, the weekly show possible. And uh, that's Starfleet, Sohel, Cake is Eternal, Crazy Dutchy, Joanne Robertson, John Daw, Geek Filter, Old Grey Trekkie, Quarksbar, Benginium, Stephanie Durantas, Matthew Averett, Braxton, Chuck A, and our anonymous supporters. Uh, thank each and every one of you so much. We really appreciate it. Just a reminder to the uh, the patrons out there, our watch party is going to be tomorrow. If you're watching us live on Friday, it's going to be tomorrow, Saturday, uh, February 17th in the Text Trek Discord. We are going to be watching the Voyager episode, Someone to Watch Over Me. That's uh, season five, episode 20-something. I'm going to guess 22, I think. But it's the one where they sing uh, You Are My Sunshine, as Sohel likes to refer to it that way. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to uh, thank everyone for the very generous uh, super chats uh, that we received uh, today. Uh, Matthew Averett with a very generous $10 super chat says, Just wanted to say... I hope everyone has a great weekend. I promise to pick up Patreon again. Thank you, Matthew, so much for helping us out on Patreon. And and then he he gave us another $5. Thank you so much to let us know that he is back on Patreon. So uh, we really appreciate it, Matthew Averett. Please, uh, if anyone else wants to sign up on Patreon, you know, now would be a great time. You can come into the watch party tomorrow. Come to whatever level you want, as little as $2 a month. I'll get you into the monthly watch parties. And uh, Benginium, also with a very generous super chat of $5, says, I miss Drex Files so much. Used to pour over the site for hours and hours. And uh, Geek Filter, thank you for the $5. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Uh, so we uh, really appreciate everyone who tuned in live and everyone else listening later. In two weeks, Dave and I will be back with another guest, uh, David Mack, a Star Trek author. has written a, a bunch of Star Trek novels, but he has the uh, the new one coming out with the Seven of Nine backstory. So uh, that's going to be fun to talk about. Totally. And... But we're not going to have a show next week. I'm going to be in Florida, but I will probably be posting, maybe do some type of stream with Sohel and Ruben. I don't know. I might I might do something from the ship on the cruise because the Star Trek cruise is next week. It's just a matter of whether we can get the uh, subspace communications working. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting because on the ship itself, they have like pretty good ship Wi-Fi, I guess through Starlink, but it's not quite good enough to, to the upload speeds aren't there to like stream. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to like live stream from there, but, uh, before the ship gets too far away from land, maybe I can, maybe I can do some live streaming for there. But the, the point is, uh, just make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel. If, if you listen to the podcast on a, on a podcast platform, but you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, you should go over to YouTube and hit subscribe because then you can see my cool cruise updates and you can also help us reach our goal of getting to, uh, 1701 subscribers. It'd be really cool to hit that, uh, that beautiful NCC 1701 number oh, yeah. at some point this year. But uh, 
Dave, I think that'll um I think there's gonna be a lot of cool stuff coming up though. We have a, a big uh celebration of of discovery planned for March. We wanna do some fun stuff there. Hopefully report on some stuff from uh, South by Southwest here in Austin with mm-hmm. uh the premiere, the red carpet premiere of Star Trek uh Discovery season five happening here in less than a month. Yep. If we can if it, if it, things come together it would it will be awesome. But one way or the other, we're going to be covering it, of course. Yeah, we're we're tr- we're we're trying to see what we can do, um, and then after that, we'll be of uh of course covering every episode of season five as they come out. They said they're going to do a two episode premiere, which those are always hard on me. But I, people seem to like it. People seem to like getting like multiple episodes. What's wrong with y'all wanting like multiple episodes released at the same time? I'm like, no, just give me one a week, so 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 I have like a can pace out my podcast content, but. Uh, but we'll cover all of those, and then later in the year we'll have uh, more Prodigy and, of course, Lower Decks and uh, Section Thirty One movie. I think it'll be out like fall or Christmas. So shooting now in Toronto, currently currently being shot. So plenty of things coming up. But yes, David Mack in two weeks, and again there won't be a show Friday like normal. I'll be on the Star Trek cruise. I'll be at sea. But if you subscribe to YouTube, you might see some fun content there. But uh, I don't know, Dave. I feel like uh, uh, I feel like I should ask you, like, what's going on in, in in your world? I don't know. Like, I'm I'm gonna be like off off boozing and cruising in a week. What, what, are, you, what are you gonna be up to next yeah, week? I don't we, know. We don't. I'm have gonna a probably. Show. You, know, you know, I'm doing a little movie challenge, and so uh, where I try to watch 30 movies in 30 days, or 29 in 29 days, as is the case in uh, February. And so I'm, I'm I'm watching a variety of uh, movies, trying to see some things I haven't seen, and uh, having fun with that, and. Uh, I'll, I'll probably be doing a little bit of catch up there, reading uh, David Mack's book, you know, getting yeah. uh, queued up for that. So if people want to follow Dave's uh, movie journey, what, what are some of the movies that you watched lately that you're like writing up? Oh about? my gosh. Well, uh, uh, some classics like Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard. Um, I watched uh, a good stupid movie, Zoolander. <laughs> um, yeah, you'd never seen, neither one of us have ever seen Zoolander until very recently. Like you've watched it and, and you really uh, liked just, it. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you I, know, I feel obligated. Like I should watch it now because it's it's you weird. Watch that, it. It's weird that both of us had never seen it, and then yeah. like one of us watched it, and the other one still has never seen it. Because I feel like everyone's watched the movie. Um, uh, yeah, that's true. That's part of the reason why I was like, just like, I just need to see this. Yeah. Uh, a friend, I, I haven't watched the Emperor's New Groove either. A friend, I've of never mine seen that one either. Saw that, and 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 I'm like, I don't know why I'm never excited for it, but everybody always says it's super fun. And then I've watched some like arts art house movies too, like uh, foreign movies, The Lives of Others. And I watched something recently called, uh, oh my god, I'm gonna remember, I'm, I'm gonna forget the name of it. Oh god, that's yeah. Never mind. Pretend I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Word. Well, I I'm trying to do an abridged version of Dave's movie challenge where I've selected I think six movies. I just did one for each category. Yeah, yeah. Haven't watched any of them. Yeah, I might watch one on President's Day, so that'll be my challenge to see if I. <laughs> there you go. Knock out one. <laughs> But yeah. uh, I, I think I can do it. But uh, but yeah. So uh, again, th- there's uh, some fun stuff going on in the Discord. So people people can keep these text trek conversations going and uh, participate in them by joining the Discord over there. And uh, we'll we'll chat with you. Sometimes I watch stuff in Discord. I might I might watch a, a movie on President's Day. I, I don't know what movie it'll be. I think Barbie was on my list. Mm. I haven't seen that yet. And Father, you've you've played you've run played games before too, like the last Trek uh, game that came out uh, just a few. Or, I did, I did, that, I did that, that on was, YouTube. You're right. That was that was not on uh, Discord per se. 
Yeah, but, but but join the Discord and subscribe to the channel and rate the podcast. I, I was saying how cool it would be to, to get up to a 4.7 on Spotify. We need some more five stars. We were at 4.2, which is good. You know, if you're like into Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But I'm into Star Trek. I want it up above 47. 47 or higher. And it got up to a 4.3. It's still at a 4.3. So if uh, people can rate the podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And that will help more people discover us. And put a big smile on our faces. Get us to warp five. <laughs> yeah, like Trip Tucker. Well, no, Trip Tucker was like, no, 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 the donuts, you'll fly apart. Like, <laughs> Despite Trip Tucker, let's get it up there. <laughs> That's right. We have to be like the captain demanding it. I'm just like, sorry, Trip, it just has to be, man. And if you are someone who's going on the Trek cruise, uh, look for the dude with the uh, the the beard and the backwards cap walking around uh, with the big belt buckle. Because that's going to be the text trick dude, Fathery. And come uh, come holler at me and talk to me, and we'll talk Star Trek and have a fun time hanging out on the ship with a lot of cool Star Trek fans and Star Trek actors. When I come back, we'll have uh, some fun with uh, David Mack, and I guess then we'll be kind of on the road to the return of Discovery and all the fun stuff in store with that. Seems like a plan. Until next time, as always... Live long and prosper, y'all. Listen to the Text Trek podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at text-trek.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash text-trek. And follow Fathery on Twitter at TXTrek. Please support us by liking our videos and subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Thank you and take care.